Hey, everyone. Welcome to Giant Bomb Presents. This is Austin Walker, editor at Giant Bomb. Today, I'm speaking with Henrik Ferreus. Can you give it to me, Henrik? Uh, Henrik Ferreus. That's okay. That's close enough. I'm, I'm, I apologize. I like, to, I like to get names right. It's kind of weirdly important to me, but I should have given myself you know, an hour of practice for this one. Uh, Henrik, yeah, this is kind of a master level name. So. <laughs> <laughs> it is for for you know my my terrible American tongue. You know we don't we don't people who have your name when they came here they just got a different name. That's what we did to you. Is <laughs> yeah. no, you're Frank. You're Henrik Frank. Good enough. You know, which was exactly. which is a problem. Yeah. Let's say, uh, Henrik, you are a game director at Paradox Paradox Design Studios. Uh, I guess people would know your work from games like Crusader Kings Two. The Hearts of Iron series, uh, Europa Universalis, from what two forward? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Actually, I started at Paradox, uh, working on Europa Universalis two, um, and then I've been working. You know, I've dabbled in most of the games we've been doing internally here or there. You know, just like uh, touch. Have you touched everything at this point? Basically, yeah. You know, <laughs> I got to keep my hands dirty. So uh. <laughs> I, I I can totally respect that. Uh, and then, and then the reason you know I I kind of got in touch with you was I, mean, I want to talk about some of those games and and you know uh, your history with Paradox and your history with Grand Strategy games in general. But I also you know uh, at at Gamescom, Paradox announced uh, a game called Stellaris, which looks yeah. like it's coming out next year at some point. Exactly. Yeah, we can't say exactly when at this point, but sure. uh, sometime next year. Uh, and that is going to be a science fiction, a sci-fi space Grand Strategy game. Is that is that a proper yeah, you know, Basic I'd like to call it a, a grand strategy game in right. space. Uh, okay, really. <laughs> yes, that's that's fair. Um, but but you know, distinct from other you know four X games in space, and then maybe we'll get into some of that distinction in the future uh, of this conversation. Um, oh, for sure, it sounds interesting. <laughs> so so, what got you into uh, what got you to Paradox? I guess you know what what drew you to want to work there. How long have you been there, and what got you into the the grand strategy genre to begin with? Right. Well, you know, I, I started seeing screenshots of the original European Versailles, and I thought to myself, hey, this is, this is really something new. I haven't seen this before. The whole world divided into provinces was kind of, was kind of mm-hmm. pretty radical at the time. So um, when I got wind of that, I, I tried to get in the beta. Uh, I didn't. <laughs> uh, but then I got the game, and I made a mod for it called the Improved Grand Campaign. Mm. Um, and it so happened that, you know, no, as, as a modder, you know, you're never happy with anything. Right, right. <laughs> but, uh, but it so happened that um, uh, Johan Anderson at, at Paradox at the time, he uh, he saw this model and he was pretty impressed. So he decided to hire me, basically. Um, and I took it from there. Awesome. And then, and then from there you went on to design Hearts of Iron and participate in, in EU2 formally and a bunch of other stuff, right? Yeah, I started out writing basically events and story, you know, narrative for Europe Versailles 2. Um, I also, I'm also happen, I'm an, uh, you know, a programmer by mm. profession, really, originally. So I started programming AI, uh, and I was given this uh, task of trying to come up with uh, a design for a World War II game. Okay. Um, so I did. I wrote like 150 pages of that. Wow. <laughs> uh, 
And much of it actually ended up in the game. Uh, some turned out to be a bit unwieldy. So, mm. what what's an example of something that? So, I you know, uh, I guess one. What is Hearts of Iron for people who who maybe don't know or who who only know your work at from from games like Crusader Kings two? What is Hearts of Iron? And then I really am curious. What was unwieldy for that game? <laughs> yeah, well, Hearts of Iron is basically a spin-off we made of Europe and Resolis, but we decided that it, it, it would be about World War II because we thought that was pretty cool. Um, there were a lot of people at the company who wanted to do a World War II game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we decided that it would be more of a war game, okay. um, basically in the tradition of, of board games like uh, World in Flames, for example, Sure, was, was one of the inspirations. Um, but we still wanted to keep it like uh, a province-based game a bit like Europe and Resolis, because that's the engine we had to work with. Still a game about about states and nations and their character, in a sense, and, and not just a game about armies marching. No, exactly. It's, it's not so much about micromanaging your armies, right. although the original Hearts of Iron was more along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of a hybrid between the economical, industrial part of World War II right. and the, uh, the actual warfare mechanics right so what got cut i'm curious what got cut from your 150 page document (laughs) just one example i'm sure there are a million and and i'm sure there were good reasons for getting cut but i am curious it was a while ago but one of the things i I remember being cut was was the supply system (laughs) which which i realize now you know in hindsight that it was completely unwieldy right so um you know johan saw that this would not work and uh so we cut it and made it simpler that's fair I mean, that's, that seems like a tough thing to do in your, in your shoes, right? Where, you know, the, the sorts of games you design are incredibly complex. Uh, and from the outside, it's not often clear why, um, you know, you might take one direction or another or, or why one feature is included or another isn't. Because it's, it's easy to seem like, especially if you're just dipping your toes into the genre or into a specific, even, even into a specific game, you can say like, Wait, why is this system here? You know, this this technology system or this research system is is seems unwieldy to me, or or it seems, um, or or even it, you know, it seems like it's not that important. You know, when you're first learning a system, how hard is it to figure out what is worth fighting to make? You know, to make fit the dock, and what really is too unwieldy to fit in? Yeah, but I, I guess that's really the hardest part uh, of game design. You know, it's it's fairly easy to come up with cool mechanics in a way or at mm-hmm. least mechanics you want to simulate or, or you know uh, have in the game um, and then it's all about restricting yourself and you know <laughs> making those hard choices what do we actually keep here what what is the core loop of this game right what would you really focus on uh, and i about to say you know the hearts of iron series has always struggled a bit with that it's um Slightly, well, it's not schizophrenic, but it has a slight case of personality, uh, multiple personality disorder, basically. Well, you know, like so you said, it has a fo- It really wants to try to walk the line between economic simulation and war simulation, and that those are those are interesting things, and and often conflict with each other, even in in the real world, right? They don't they don't match up neatly. Yeah, exactly, and it's also you know who are you targeting here? Is it mm-hmm. like uh, the armchair generals who know everything about World War Two? Or do you want to kind of reach a slightly broader crowd? And uh, so, for example, Horse of Iron has always struggled with, should it be a more free-form game? Right. 
where kind of weird things will happen. Or like should a we sandbox stick- where, yeah, where exactly. Greece becomes an important power in World War II. That's strange, you know, but it, it could happen <laughs> versus a game where if you let it play itself out, it would follow history in, in, in lockstep. Exactly. You know, how deterministic should it be? You know, mm-hmm. people expect World War II, so we can't really move away from that. On the other hand, we're actually better at making... <laughs> you know, free form sandbox type games like Crusader Kings, for example. It's an interesting but, dilemma too, because, you know, so I, my gut is that there are, there's room in the world for both sorts of those games. I don't think that, I don't think that we as game, you know, critics and game designers need to decide once and for all whether our games should be historically accurate, quote unquote, or, or, you know, leave things up for, for divergence. Um, but they, but deciding which way to take for any given project seems to me to have, uh, you know, not only a different heart, but almost a different politics, right? Like there is something, there is something different to say, this is the way it played out. And if you build the, our rule set will always ensure that these sorts of things, these basic, you know, touchstones, these, these basic moments on the timeline will occur deterministically through the system and not just through scripted events, but through the system, these yeah. sorts of events will happen versus saying, actually history didn't need to be the way it was that there are things at play that could have shifted here or there. Um, and that we could be in a completely different world than the one that we ended up in. Um, yeah. I think that's an interesting and tough <laughs> decision to have to make as a designer. I bet it's a tough one. Um, but we've been moving, you know, steadily away from the historically deterministic approach. Mm. Uh, even European Resolis 1 was more along those lines. And especially the board game at the root of the game. Right. Uh, I don't know if you've tried that. I uh, haven't. I, is that, uh, I have not. I would love to. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting to play. But it, it's full of deterministic events, basically, that will force things okay. uh, along a certain route. I got gotcha. you. So then I'd like to, to zoom in a little bit on, so you, you know, you were working on games like EU and Hearts of Iron, um, and then there was this shift in the games you were making where it, it wasn't just about armies, it wasn't just about uh, economies or, or nation states, it suddenly became about characters too, or individuals who are then linked to factions and faiths and families and things like that. And I guess, that, does that actually start with Sengoku? Is that the first one, or did, did CK1 uh, actually hit first? Yeah, CK1 was first, okay. actually. You know, if yeah, you haven't it played early it, 2000s, it could be right? interesting from, uh, just to, <laughs> to get some perspective on, on Crusader Kings 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crusader Kings 1 was a very similar game, really. Um, I think it should have done much better, but it was a bit of a rushed project mm-hmm. and didn't get enough marketing and so on. Um, but it's still a, a fun little game. So, basically, we, early on, we had this idea that we would cover the entirety of, of human history. <laughs> uh, and we would, you know... Just a small idea, a, just a little, a little goal for yourselves. Just a tiny yeah, little Yeah, you know, we, we've always been a bit megalomaniac. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so each game would have a different focus. And, you know, the medieval setting was perfect for, for characters. It's, it's all about the rulers. Right. And then European Rosales covers the era of the nation-states, mm-hmm. essentially, uh, and early imperialism. And then you have Victoria, which is, you know, right. the game about the people and the, the, the causes the of the people. And, right, Social totally. revolution and so on. And Horse of Iron uh, doesn't really fit in very well, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's a World War II game. Hey, so, you know, yeah. you need one of those sometimes in your catalog, right? Like, there is, there is certainly a, a, 
a fan base who maybe isn't going to be moved by oh you can look at this 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 one king really like gardening isn't going to win over some people but like oh i can move my you know my tank formation into poland there are people who are just like that's the game they want you know absolutely uh, yeah you know when we we try to cater to these different crowds uh personally i'm you know i favor these character based games I, I find them extremely fascinating yeah um, but for example, Hearts of Iron, we've changed lead director basically for each game almost. So it's always been a new take on right. the same basic concept. Right. Uh, whereas now, you know, you're moving, you're moving forward. You know, I, I, so for me, there was this moment where I had I'd kind of grown up playing a couple of grand strategy games. You know, I dipped my toes into EU when I was a teenager, and I played a ton of 4X games. Uh, which which is a different thing, right? Like, 4X games are not... I guess you should ask you what you think the, the big difference is between a 4X game like Civilization uh, and a game like uh, Europa Universalis or or uh, like like Crusader Kings 2. I guess it's slightly arbitrary. Yeah, um, sure. But, you know, for me, a 4X game is kind of characterized by starting small. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure turn-based, you know, they're usually turn-based, but I'm, I'm not sure that's a proper yeah, there's some, there's <laughs> dividing some that, line. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's like, you start small, um, you explore the world, which is, un, which is covered basically under some kind of terra incognita. Um, you grow, you meet the other, you know, the, the rival nations or players. Right. Um, you struggle against them. You defeat them, you, you kind of win. You win, right. <laughs> so, the, the end of the goal, there's a goal. And that goal could be, yep. you know, expansionist, you know, uh, having an, an empire that expands to the, the ends of the earth or, or devastating your opponent's capitals or achieving some technological or economic victory or something. But, like, there is an end goal. Whereas in, in the grand strategy games you, you produce, obviously there can be a scoring system, but it's mostly micro goals or, or even long-term goals set up by the player for themselves, Right. Yeah, that's true. But you know, we we usually do have some kind of victory, mm. even if few players actually reach that <laughs> yeah. point where the time I, runs out. I've or, definitely you know. put you know tons of hours into <laughs> CK two, and I don't, I can't even. I have lots of very important moments that I can think of in my in my time with Crusader <laughs> Kings two. None of them, yeah. I, I wouldn't call any of them a decisive total victory. You know, no, exactly. No, no I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not really that interested in in victory as mm-hmm. such in games like this, although. <sighs> I, yeah, that's not true, entirely true, but, you know, for example, Sengoku is nice in a way mm-hmm. because it does have a clear victory goal. It's, you know, Unite Japan and you have won. Right, right. Um, but it's a lesser scoped game Yeah, as well. it's zoomed in quite a bit, right? You know, you can, you can, that's a, that is the sort of, of a goal that I would have while playing CK2, right? Like that's, that's, oh, I want to establish you know, the, the, the empire of, of, you know, this or that, right? Like that's, that can yeah. be the sort of goal. I want to unify Western Europe or something yeah, like you know, that. Exactly right. And, you know, that's the kind of thinking I have for, you know, if we ever do Crusader Kings 3, you know, which is likely, I guess, uh, <laughs> which it, <laughs> I would like to have like many little victories instead right. of one final end game victory. Totally. So you like, like set missions in the game for yourself probably or something like that and right. fulfill them. So yeah, so I kind of came back into uh, strategy games. So I left strategy games in the middle of the 2000s. Around when I went to college, probably, I kind of, um, I, I've talked about this actually on on the podcast Three Moves Ahead, which is a fantastic podcast on the Idle Thumbs Network. 
uh, yeah, episode uh, on the 4X genre. And I kind of said, like, around the time I got into college and started thinking about things, I also kind of fell off the notion. Like, I didn't want games with win conditions. I didn't want strategy games about conquering the world anymore. I wanted games about the world and about nations coming into contact with each other in interesting ways. But I kind of got turned off of that notion of, like, I'm going to build up the biggest army and then crush my enemies. And I still played them from time to time because, like, my friends did. And I wanted to play, you know, Civ with them, obviously. Uh, but it wasn't a thing I devoted as much time as I used to. And then I played Sengoku, and then I played Crusader Kings 2. And that shift from the nation uh, to the the individual, the, the kind of character in their relationships, was it was like scales fell from my eyes. Like, oh my god, games can do this too? Uh, <laughs> and, and that, re- you know, and since then I've actually gone back to play 4X games and, and some other things too, especially games that, that at least play with, with some of those other notions. Um, so, so... I think it's fair to say, for me at least, that that these games, especially Crusader Kings 2, felt like a shift in the larger strategy game genre, and I, it seems to have done pretty well for you. Is That that seems true? Yeah, no, it was a, absolutely a breakthrough title for the studio. Um, we reached a whole new level. Now, it's, you know, it's not just because it's a good game. Uh, it's also, I think, because we, we took a step graphically and so on. Right. Although I like to think it's the game. <laughs> right, yeah, I think so. I, I, here's what I'll say. is like I think that if you've come up on strategy games, like, like strategy games, you look at yeah. CK2 and you say, oh, yeah, it's a, that's a, a nice-looking game. If you didn't, and like, you know, there are plenty of my friends who now love <laughs> Crusader Kings 2 who are looking at it and, and going like, uh, what do you mean this looks good, Austin? What do you mean, like... <laughs> Like, oh, but look at these little uh, forests. Look at how look at those little forests. Those are real cool looking. Like, okay, Austin, yeah. whatever. You, look at that mountain. Like, okay, uh, you know, yeah. to that to you that. Keep, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, you know, you, you got to keep some some kind of minimum standard, or yes. people will go, oh wait, no, I'm not going to bother with this. You know, uh, I, so that's what we're aiming for. We're I'm, always going to like look contemporary, at least. You know, <laughs> totally, totally. I will say that one of the things that I think Crusader Kings Two does super well, and, and I want to shift and, and maybe start talking a little bit about Stellaris, even though I, I still have some other questions about CK2 and, and some other stuff, uh, is, is when I show, when I zoom out, at this point especially, in Crusader Kings 2, now that, you know, there's, there's uh, the Horse Lord just came out and, and Rajas of India last, last year, I guess, uh, came out, I, I show this map of this world. And, like, one, it's, it's massive. And the scope, I think, when I show that to friends, they're like, wow. Like, I can, I can zoom into any of this and I can play as this count here in the middle of nowhere. Like, yeah, you could play as that count. Like, that's – the other thing is that I think that it, it's an evocative map uh, in, its, in its kind of flourishes, uh, in its basic styles um, or styling. And, and I think that, that it also does a, a smart thing. And this is a thing that, that maps can do – is that it leverages what we already know about the world, right? Like, we know that mountains are hard to cross. We know that oceans separate, you know, countries, and that that's a thing to, to be valued, you know, to, to consider valuable. We know that certain ports in the world are valuable because they give you access to other places. Uh, and, and I think that CK2 is, like, a great example of that. One of my kind of questions about Stellaris is, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong about this, but... Solaris is going to have procedurally generated maps every time you start a new game. Is that right? That's correct. Although, I mean, we made sure that we support pre-scripted maps. Sure. Because, you know, we expect that modders will want to do right. all right. kinds right. of, of course. Like, here is, here is the Star Trek map. Here is the... Or even just, like, here is my unique take on a good, what a good map looks like. I'm sure that there... Yeah. That is, but, like, is it difficult? What are the challenges to building a kind of galactic map where... 
Every person, you know, not every person, plenty of people, the majority of people who will play your game understand that mountains are a difficulty to deal with and that they are a natural boundary between, between you know, different regions. Um, we don't have that for the galaxy in the same way we do for Earth. Is that a challenge? And, and how do you balance being de- developing a, a map generation system that creates maps that can ease the player into understanding what those things are while also creating a map that's evocative and filled with character and filled with right. style? It's a tough one, um, but, you know, it's been tackled by other, you know, 4X games over sure. the years. And they've had, like, nebulas, they've had, like, voids between the galactic arms mm-hmm. or you know, different FTL types that kind of limit you and create a sort of natural terrain to this galactic map. So, you know, I don't see that as our main challenge with this game, although we are tackling it Mm -hmm. in in our own way. Um, But it can never, I suppose, well, it could be, but, you know, (laughs) it won't be as uh, complex as a a real map with rivers and forests and hills and... And all that kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's so tough right. to to do that in a way that still, you know, I think there's a there's obviously a type of player who sees a nebula and gets like incredibly excited because like they do have ideas about what that nebula can do. But I but I yeah. and and I might be that player, right? Like I'm I kind of <laughs> lost my mind when I saw Stellaris. You know, they, I, I some leaks came out a few hours before the before the release, and I was like, wait, are they right. really? Is this really? This is really happening? <sighs> you know, but. But at the same time, it's like, oh, there's a whole load of challenges here because a lot of the touchstones, because science fiction is such a is such a thing. It's, you know, space is such a it's such a it, it. You can do so many different things with the notion of doing a game set in space with aliens, uh, and and I'm curious to see. And when I think of as paradox's traditional strengths, which is about producing human civilizations on the screen. Uh, I'm not. I'm. I'm curious to see how that translates to producing alien cultures, and and you know, because I don't think it's necessarily a one to one sort of you know uh, thing. You can't just put Germany on the. You can't just make space Germany. You know what I mean? No, exactly. No, it, it is a new challenge for us. It's definitely interesting to work with this uh, freer concept because usually we have. Yeah, I guess you could call them crutches almost. You know, yeah. we have history to look at and the. The uh, mechanics of history, you know, the, the great transformations in history, and we can try to model them. Mm-hmm. But when it's the future we're talking about, you know, who knows? So you have, basically have to turn to the various uh, science fiction writers and and uh, lean on them instead. Basically, what what, what, what is plausible? What right. could happen in the future? <laughs> what is um? What, what are some of your major influences? Oh, I guess fictionally first, but then, but also, I am curious, game design wise, also. But let's start fictionally. Uh, fictionally, it's basically everything. I mean, I've read a lot. I've watched most science fiction shows, you mm-hmm. know, and most of the people on the team have as well. So, you know, there is this treasure chest of science fiction writing to rely on, which is, I guess, a bit similar to history books for this game. You know, <laughs> it right. could be the Foundation Trilogy by Asimov or something. You know, we, we, uh, there, there, there is such a wealth of stuff to pick and choose from, mm-hmm. really. And I think that's going to be the, st- the strength of this game as well, that uh, every time you discover the galaxy, it's going to be new and different because we, we're using different like influences from, <laughs> from the great treasure chest of science fiction. Right. And that also kind of gets into part of one of the things that makes science fiction, you know, kind of space sci-fi stories, so, so interesting for, for people is like there is this notion of exploration and discovery that 
you don't necessarily have in some of Paradox's other games, right? Like, we know what Earth is. We do know what we know when the Reformation is coming, right? We know we know what this frontier, you know, what this um, sorry, what this front in a war might look like. Whereas so many science fiction stories are specifically about us not knowing what's what's beyond the next, you know, bend of stars. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, th- that's what I wanted to work with here because I find, you know. The most interesting X of the four, if you will, uh, is the exploration part, uh, because I think that's kind of underdeveloped in, in most similar games that I've played right. over the years. So, so game-wise, what are your major explora- or explorations? Now I'm thinking about it. All I'm thinking about is exploration, right? I can do exploration. What are some of your major inspirations for, for uh, uh, well, game I mean, here? We do a grand strategy game, so mm-hmm. I think I have that covered pretty well. <laughs> uh, but as for the other types of games, um, the 4X game I personally like the best at the moment is probably Distant Worlds. Yeah, that's what I was. That's uh, that's the one that I was curious about specifically. But can keep keep going and, and tell me why. Yeah, you, no. Uh, what what makes also you? There's games we've published like Sword of the Stars. Of course, they, sure. they serve credit uh, for some of the ideas. Right, Sword um, of the Stars had the thing where there were different kind of methods of traveling through space. Right, where some factions traveled through space with with hyperspace drives where they could go wherever they wanted, but a little slower and other factions could travel with, with, uh, you know, incredible speed, but only through at, only from set points, you know, from this star to that star and not in between. Yeah. So that, for example, is a really good idea, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's something we're going to develop in this game. It's a nice way to differentiate factions in their play styles for sure. Yeah. Uh, and also as we were talking about the terrain of the map and the layout and Mm -hmm. what, where you can move and how and so on. Yeah. So, um, I guess, and then, of course, Civilization, all of the games <laughs> throughout the years. Totally. Uh, but, I've, you know, I've, I've played most of the great 4X games. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, one of the things for me that's interesting about, you, you brought up Distant Worlds, which, is, which has also been my kind of space 4X of choice over the last four years or something. Um, that's a game that is incredibly complex and offers both scope and intimacy, right? Like that's a game where yeah. you can zoom out and see and just be, there's, there's a, a sort of sublime moment that you can see in distant worlds where you zoom out. And, and for pe- players who don't know, uh, in distant worlds, one of the features of that game is that there is kind of an automated, uh, I mean, there's all sorts of automation that you can, that you can actively turn on. But one thing that's always automated is trade that like your civilians will run yeah. their businesses and just seeing the ships bounce back and forth between your planets and planets in factions that you have, um, uh, you know, a trading alliance with, or, a, you know, a, a treaty with that is like overwhelming, but you can also say like, look at one exploration ship. You can turn automation on for everything else in the game. You know, the, your, your whole nation, your whole empire, your whole space fleet will be automated and you can zoom and say, I just want to control this one exploration ship <laughs> And go look at weird space anomalies and dig up, you know, old space graves. Uh, yeah. Is is the goal for Stellaris to offer both of the both that scope and that intimacy? Uh, yes, it is actually. But you know, we're not do, we're not going the automation route this mm-hmm. time around. We tried it with Hearts of Iron Three. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've managed it, you know, superiorly in in distant worlds. So kudos to them. <laughs> uh, but this, I know, I know from experience that getting this kind of system to work really well will take a lot of time and might not be worth it in the end. Uh, for example, like the private sector they have in Distant Worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, it's beautiful, it's great, uh, <laughs> but it's also some, a game or a system that kind of does its own thing. Right. 
and I'm, I'm not sure it's, you know, worth it. <laughs> yeah, so, like, I, I've i never known how to impact it in, an, in a meaningful way in Distant Worlds, for instance, right? Like, I, I like looking at it, and I think that it's an, an interesting way to um, to talk about or to, to model one sort of society, a society with private trade, right? Uh, yeah. but, I, but I don't think that that's necessarily the best way, you know? Well, it's, you know, bang for the buck. That's mm-hmm. what you got to think about. And uh, if a system is kind of invisible, and we've done this a lot in our games too, you know, it might not be uh, where you should put your main efforts. <laughs> so, so where <laughs> are good, you putting but... your effort here to, to do the kind of scope and intimacy thing? Well, we're basically focusing mostly on, uh, well, there are so many areas really, but, you know, we're, we're putting a lot of effort into scripting a lot of uh, branching little stories or mm. storylets, if you will. Okay. Um, that should hopefully, you know, we be given enough variation that even if they seem to start the same way you've seen before, it might end a completely different way this time around. Okay. So, on. so th- that's a, one of the major uh, challenges with the game, to fill it with enough of this stuff. Um, and also, you know, developing the cl- old Closevitz engine mm-hmm. to be able to support this. <laughs> right, because this is the same Completely. engine that's, that you've been using now for how many games now? Six, six, seven? Oh, More than that, yeah, even? Basically, EU3 was the first game running right. on the Closevitz engine. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of games now. <laughs> yeah. Are you, are you um, finding ways to, to bounce things you're learning about that engine here or developments you're making, changes you're making? back into uh, ongoing games like CK2 or EU4? Oh, for sure. I mean, for one thing, we, we actually have a proper engine team these days. <laughs> uh, so so we actually, we're better at sharing our uh, you know, code between the different projects. So mm-hmm. innovations in one game are very likely to propagate to the others. Great. Um, for example, the multiplayer code uh, in Stellaris is, is a huge leap forward. I'm games, so. pretty excited to see that bounce back to, to some previous games. As someone who has tried many times to run, you know, a CK2 multiplayer game and had, like, out-of-sync issues or, or things like that, you know? Yeah. No, yeah, no it's, uh, unfortunately, we probably won't backport it to those games sure, because that would be too much effort. But future titles, you know, totally. are, are very likely to be uh, up to the same standard. That's exciting. Uh, so, so I do want to go back a second to this notion of the storylets and, and the, the kind of... I want to look back at Stellaris. I want to look at Stellaris a little bit more because because uh, I think it's important to. So the way I, I explain CK two to people, the way I talk about Crusader Kings two, if I have someone who's never played it or who maybe all they played is Civilization, um, which I don't mean as a diss to them, right? Like I, you should play Civilization. It's a, it's a great series. But I, I almost always start with some sort of anecdote, right? I say like, <laughs> oh, well, you know, I was the Queen of France when X Y Z happens, or like I was I was playing this this Duke who who had control of of sicily and was going after malta um because i wanted access to northern africa you know something like that right uh and and i tell stories about about those kind of character moments uh and and i can also zoom out and say you know but the the holy roman empire had had amassed this huge army and they were at my you know i can do i can do that the scope and the intimacy thing but but i'm but i can that's how i i tell people i talk about about these kind of anecdotal stories what does can have is, is Stellaris in a place yet where you can tell me one of those from your own experiences with it, or even can you paint me a picture of like what what that what you hope to achieve in this game? You know what sort of moments you you want the player to experience. 
No, I, I want the player to experience similar moments, but you know, Stellaris to me is kind of divided into three phases almost. So, okay. so the early game, the the, the exploration, <laughs> acts, if you will, yes. uh, will be characterized by these little stories playing out. You know, your your scientist might have the trait. Well, actually, let's start like this. Let's start. <laughs> let's start earlier. Yeah. What uh, is, yeah, what is Stellaris? Early. Wait a second. Slow down. <laughs> Talk to me about pitch so me Stellaris. Shit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So he's he's kind of a green guy. He's a skill level one scientist. Okay, so you, so you at the beginning up. of the game, then you have what a couple of planets and a scientist and a ship. Is that the what is the starting? What's it look like at the beginning of this game? It's pretty classic uh, 4X, I guess. You start with your home planet. You have a science ship, a construction ship, a little fleet, uh, and that's it. Okay, basically. Um, so you send out your science ship to survey your home system. Mm-hmm. Um, this is basically just normal exploration, scanning the planets. And say that he finds an anomaly on one of these planets. Okay. It's uh, an ancient temple that seems to have been created by some weird aliens or something. Gasp. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes in there and he reads the, you know, the text. But he happens to go insane because it's like, you know, right, things man were not meant to know. Right. Yeah, uh, these are Lovecraftian <laughs> aliens. I, yep. Okay. Yeah. So he actually turns insane. So he gets a trait called like mad scientist. So this is so in this case the scientist is is the, is a character in the model that we might be familiar with from from some other PDX yes. games. Yes, okay. uh, characters in Stellaris are a little bit like a cross between the characters you would see in Europa Rosalis and in Crusader Kings too. They okay. don't get married and have kids, but they still have a certain personality and things happen to them. Okay, so to speak. Um, so yeah, he goes insane, uh, and then after a while, you know, he he just disappears, and then there's a little quest chain going on. <clears throat> Where did he go? What is he up to? And then you might find find out that he, he actually defected to one of the alien factions, and he might come back and <laughs> interact in certain ways. So, uh, yeah, th- that's kind of the story you would see in this game. Right. Uh, whereas Crusader Kings Two is obviously much more involved. You know, uh, so I impregnated your sister, and <laughs> right. you know, right. I made a rival who will come back and exact revenge. And right. So um, so that's the, the kind yeah. of you said the, there's kind of three phases and that first phase is that exploration phase. I'm guessing that the second phase is still expansion in the in the kind of traditional 4x model. Yeah, and then we enter more familiar territory, especially to those who have played our games. I, right. I'd say, um, you know, conquest isn't quite as easy <laughs> as okay. it is maybe in classical 4x games. Um, you actually have to have some sort of claim to take a planet, for example. So. Uh, you need to occupy a planet and then, you know, negotiate for it in a peace. Occupying a planet with your troops doesn't mean it's yours immediately right. Uh, right. and so on. That's, so really, that's really a fascinating change to that basic, you know, if you're, again, if you're coming from Paradox's games, like you're familiar with that, that, that having military might doesn't just let you, for the most part, with some exceptions, as expansions come out and as you get to play as, you know, the, the Mongols, for instance. Like, but but for, most, for most feudal societies, you can't just march into, into Paris and say, I own France now. That just isn't how it works. No, and we've basically taken that tack that in the future, there will probably be some kind of sense of law and cooperation between these alien races. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps not right at the start when you first make contact, but sure. you know, as the galactic, uh, galactic community develops, you know, we, we've, we think, <laughs> right, uh, that you still would need some kind of causes for war and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Are you, 
how are you dealing with the the notion of diplomacy between these these alien you know uh, factions? Yeah, it's again going to be fairly familiar for those who played like Europe and Four. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have like alliances, non-aggression pacts, uh, civilian access, military access. You can trade stuff with them. It's uh, it's kind of familiar, but the the big departure, I think, or the coolest new diplomatic feature, uh, at least what I think, is the notion of the federation. Okay. So. Um, you know, your starting race might have a certain government type, uh, which you know allows elections at certain points. So you can switch out your leader, or you might not. But these federations work in that way that you know you invite an alien species into an alliance, mm-hmm. um, and then you can suggest that you take this one step further and form an actual federation. Um, and the way it works is that you're still kind of sovereign states in a way, mm-hmm. uh, but there is an elected federation president who controls uh, certain things like where may you colonize, Sure. you know, can we declare war now? You need to declare war jointly and so on. Interesting. That's actually, uh, that mixes things up in an interesting way for sure. Yeah. And, you know, the, the presidency rotates between the member states. Um, and the really cool thing about it is the the whole federation has a common special fleet <laughs> while you retain your own fleet. Oh, uh, you know, the, the, okay. The federation fleet, essentially, um, which you can design using the best components of all the member states. So in a sense, if you're, if you're outside of a federation, you're like deeply limited by the technology that you've already researched, the specializations that you've taken. But once you're in a federation, you suddenly have access to to better components, but also are you not even expected at that point to be the big military power in that federation? There is like the big, there's kind of like the UN special forces. Yeah, but you know, you can't use the federation navy unless you happen to be the president almost, <laughs> uh, or usually. Sure. So, so yeah, it's, it's powerful and, you know, even a big empire might not research things at the same speed as three... <laughs> medium-sized sure. federation members, basically. Right. So it's, it's really interesting to me to think about the way science fiction um, gives us an opportunity to work through different notions of, you know, sovereignty and, and uh, statehood, um, especially, and, and culture in general, right? Where, where I'm going to make sure my point makes sense here, I guess. Uh, you know, I think, I think there's kind of, this is completely uh, an analytical category separation. This is gonna, I understand that there is a, a blurry, a blurry element here, but a blurry boundary here. But there are science fiction stories and sci-fi space stories where aliens are kind of stand-ins for human society, right? Like I said before, they're oh, those are the space Germans, right? Or even just like oh, those are the space capitalists, right? Yeah. Um, and and that can be useful and valuable, and you can do you know you can make analogies and you can and you can kind of. Uh, you know, tell parables about human society. Plenty of great Star Trek episodes are about that, right? Uh, yeah. And and then there's another thing that you can do with science fiction and and space and you know now you know fiction in general, but especially science fiction. You can say, let me imagine a world or a scenario that is given our set of given the way that we think politics works, given the way that we think culture works, given the way that we think what is reasonable or logical or, or plausible. Let me think of a, a way outside of that and, and presume a, a culture that doesn't resemble humanity uh, or, that, or that explicitly throws away the nuclear family or that 
has always been a green society and, you know, has always been concerned with, with, you know, ecology or something like that. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, there are great Star Trek stories that also do that, right? So it's not just the, you know, even inside of a given, you know, uh, franchise, it can, it can spread its wings and touch on both of those things. Um, are you trying to do both of those things or, or are you really looking to do the here? These are the space Democrats. These are the, these are the space socialists. Yeah, no, we, we uh, different races have a different ethos, basically, or empires. Okay. And, and each population unit in the game also has one. Uh, and that's what creates the friction in this game, a bit like in Victoria. Okay, so uh, so a population unit is just like the people on a planet. Yeah, it's it's like one of those workers in, in civilization, for example. Okay. But uh, these guys have, you know, uh, an ideology that kind of, you know, decides how they react on your on your actions. Okay. Um, and we kind of intentionally didn't pick ideologies that were good or evil. Sure. As such, or you know, communists, or, or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, although, of course, I mean, I mean, everything we come up with comes out of human experience. Sure, of course. Uh, so you know, it's 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 difficult to say that it's something <laughs> but, genuinely new or alien you, because we can't. It's, it's impossible. Can course. you give me an idea of what, uh, of what you mean when you talk about a, a population having an ethos versus a, you know, and how that could come into conflict with an empire's ethos? Yeah, you know, so if you have a spiritualist pop, for example, mm-hmm. or a fanatic spiritualist pop, um, it will react badly to certain technologies, for example, where you try to upload consciousness into the great computer and stuff like that. <laughs> they will not like that, so they will become uh, malcontent, basically, mm-hmm. or discontent, and they will tend to form into or group into larger factions that have a leader character. Uh, they're a bit like political parties. They, sure. they want something. They want some kind of change in society, usually to to overthrow the government type or something, but not always. Um, and you can negotiate with them, or you can treat them harshly, or you can you know wait for the rebellion and then <laughs> completely wipe them out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, of course, if they're pacifists, they probably will not rebel. But they could probably. But they can still re- resist in some way. Yeah, they will sabotage production, perhaps, or mm-hmm. just not work at all anymore, uh, which could ruin your economy. Uh, but we still group them into these factions that you can interact with right. as a whole, because there are so many of these little population units that you know you, you need to group them into larger factions for for micromanagement right. reasons, and for them to have a, a kind of presence on the galactic scale still. To yeah, because because exactly. this is a situation where I mean, this is the dream situation for me. It's like you know I'm I'm at war with a with a rival off in the distance and i really need this you know you know plutonium or this this you know i need this factory to keep producing units for me back in my you know in my homeland but there's a faction there that for whatever reason thinks that something something about that enemy faction is valuable or or you know should be should not we should not be at war for for whatever reason and they're refusing to work and i have to manage those two things and I have to go, you know, maybe I, maybe I have to pursue a treaty with this, with this rival faction and, and work through that because the population unit back at home has pushed me into that situation, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. No, that, that's the kind of thing you, you should struggle with, especially in the late game, the third phase of the game. Right. Uh, should be characterized by these internal problems. Um, you need to set certain policies, pass certain edicts, you know, should people be able to migrate freely or not? Mm. Will that piss them off? <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. Um, so the late game is probably 
you know, internal strife as well as certain external threats that we tend to throw into the mix. Because I forgot to mention that one of my inspirations uh, for this game is, you know, it's not just 4X games and grand strategy games. It's also kind of roguelike. Sure. Um, Interesting. So, you know, I, I kind of like that a certain productive randomness in mm-hmm. a game <laughs> that kind of surprises you a little bit. Totally. Uh, 4X games c- can very easily turn very predictable and spreadsheety. You know, you, you know the optimal build queue or... You know, yep. the, the way to build stuff. And it, there is a best way, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and thus you win. So I really want to avoid that. Uh, of course, I don't want to make it as, as random as Crusader Kings 2 is, especially in, you know, when it's the first few decades yeah. <laughs> of gameplay in Crusader Kings 2. It can be very, very punishing. Um, so we're trying to avoid that, but at the same time, you know, surprise the player. Yeah. Give you something to react to that you didn't see coming. This also kind of connects back to our earlier question about historical determinacy and, and you know, historical you know, accuracy. Uh, obviously, it's silly to, to kind of, at some level, it's silly to talk about a game that takes place deep in the future uh, or in a different universe altogether being historically accurate. But there is this notion that comes out of certain models of technology trees in 4X games where, uh, and, and in some grand strategy games too, where there is this notion of, a constant linear forward progress. Um, yeah. You know, uh, where it's like, there is, uh, there, this is the only way it could have happened. You know, of, of course, fusion was developed at this moment in history. Of course, uh, you know, and of course, democracy was developed at this moment in history. Yeah. It was a, nat- yeah. we, we, there's a, a sort of enlightenment era thought that like, oh, humanity is always all, this is the, you know, does does humanity does the the does the world bend does the arc of the of history bend towards justice um or is it not so you know necessarily hopeful is it not so necessarily are we not necessarily working towards a final positive state you know <laughs> yeah yeah no i i guess technology trees are a perfect example of deterministic thinking uh, as well so you know i was so used to that to having technology trees Right. I struggled for the longest time during Stellaris development with coming up with a good one that was also kind of semi-random. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, you know, we decided, why are we trying to do this? You know, why not just take it, you know, uh, one step further and make it more like you would expect in a, a kind of game of discovery and exploration? Mm-hmm. So we don't actually have a visible technology tree. Interesting. You know, you, it's more like drawing cards from a deck of cards but the deck is of course if, is stacked <laughs> if you right will. right so you're presented with three choices each time you research a new technology some of them are like common cards or uncommon or rare right um, but it but the selection is weighted based on the ethics of your empire uh, the traits of your scientist the, the head of the science department basically so you you will tend to see certain technologies but you can't be sure. You can't be sure in the order you get them. Interesting. Uh, so that means you can't, in the early game, say, okay, I'm going to set up this mine so that I can start producing this resource because I know that in 20 minutes of play or in two hours, I'm going to be definitely ready to, to start making you know, plasma lasers or whatever, whatever it is. Exactly. You cannot optimize your thinking that way. Interesting. Um, you, can, you can stack the deck. You, know, you, can, you can throw some weight behind stuff by selecting a scientist with certain traits, for example, which sure. makes it more likely you will get certain things. Um, but that's it, pretty much. 
That so, sounds really good. Like that sounds like it, it addresses a, a pretty clear problem that I, uh, yeah, problem is strong, but a, a, a gap, let's say, in what's already on the market for, for games like this. You know, I'm, yeah, I I'm, think so. You know, it, it's such a simple solution and yet brilliant. Uh, this came out of the mind of Joe and Anderson, by the way. So okay. <laughs> Joe went to the rescue. But, you know, it's, it's a really great idea and it fits the, the concept of the game mm-hmm. um, much better than having a technology tree. It also gets really interesting uh, when you, for example, I find a unique technology that, that you cannot research normally. And like in the world, you found some in, alien civilization, ancient alien civilization, or you find some, some uh, artifact that gives you a, a certain technology? Yeah, if I shoot down some kind of weird alien ship mm-hmm. uh, and I, I reverse engineer the debris after that battle, you know, I could find unique weapons modules and stuff like that. Right. And then I can actually, since I know that technology, I can equip my ship with it, obviously, um, but I can also improve it further using normal research. So, you know, the next time I get a selection of three cards, if you will, mm-hmm. one of them might be, you know, this special weapon plus 10% right, right. damage, uh, and so on. The, the thing there, too, interesting is, is how that could then tie back into the faction stuff that you talked about, not the faction stuff, the uh, Federation stuff that you talked about before, where, like, it'd be pretty advantageous to get the Salaxians in our Federation because they have that one special weapon uh, technology that we can literally not get because it's just not, it's not a card we can draw. Yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, it does. <laughs> um, is there a... You know, is there a, there's not a set collection of alien species, right? Those are also procedurally generated? Yes, that's correct. Um, that's one of the earliest kind of ideas we had that, again, I don't want to play with the same mm-hmm. eight playmates <laughs> this time around. You know, I want to right. see something new. I want to experience a new story play out this time. Right. So we, we completely discarded that idea or we didn't have it to start with. So they're all, they're all procedurally generated, uh, you, when you start a game, you can pick a pre-scripted species, mm-hmm. uh, but that's more like a quick start, and people will expect you to play as the humans starting in our solar system, <laughs> of course. and so on. Of course. But you won't meet any of them, of these, uh, you know, pre-selections. I see, so if, if I make a, a species of of spiritualistic bird people or something, I'm not going to go yeah. find the humans somewhere in the world or a different bird people starting race or something like that. Exactly right. Although, you know, you might actually meet the humans. Okay, right. <laughs> but only the humans because it's, we think it's such a cool thing if you're playing some weird alien race uh-huh. that you would actually run into us yeah. you know, and see, see us from that perspective. Yeah. But that's the exception. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, is there... You know, we talked about wind conditions before. Is there a wind condition in Stellaris? There or, is, or multiple? Yes. Um, you know, it's pretty simple at the moment. It's just controlling enough of the galaxy. Uh, there's also a technolo- technological victory planned. But okay. yes, this game has an end. <laughs> is it a thing that you can achieve? It must be a thing you can achieve as a federation too, right? Oh, yes, of course. Okay. Yes. It's interesting. Um, because that, that also opens up the possibility that something like conquest can mean, you know, uh, diplomatic allegiances that, that run very deep and very broad, you know? Oh yeah. You, and you, you had to accept a cooperative victory or, or not basically <laughs> right. or, satisfying or enough for you. Be the one who breaks away and decides, no, actually now that I have all this, this technology, I'm going to secede and, and yeah. wipe you all off the face of the map. Right. Yeah, um, exactly. 
Is uh, there? But, you know, it's we we do have a victory condition, but I expect the game to take longer. You know, it's probably going to be a bit slower paced than you would expect, maybe from you know classic 4x games. Right. Well, that's the kind of grand strategy there again, right? You know, there's exactly. there's a different yeah. pacing there, even though it's a real time game, right? Yeah, it's real time. Uh, it's it, possible real time, uh, exactly like you would see uh, in Europe or Solix, for example. Right. So, so what was the decision like to? make a game that was that had characters in it in in the kind of e4 leader way then you, know, you have these scientist characters you have these leaders um you mentioned that that kind of pop population factions can get leader characters but that's not a game like crusader kings 2 where it's a bat where you play as a character um was that was that something that was on the table at any point yeah it was actually um when i was asked to kind of come up with a design uh for a space game mm-hmm I actually presented two alternatives to management. <laughs> um, the other approach was more like a CK in space type of game mm-hmm. um, with an asymmetrical star, basically, like our historical games. Okay. So, yeah, it was... Uh, Where there are already, there's already massive empires in space and there's, it, you're a single character in a world that's already populated to some degree. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Um, well you would be the ruler of one of these sure. s- states. Right. But that was a long time ago. And, uh, <laughs> you know. I, I am curious, like, what pushed you away or what pushed you know, the, the team away from that design? I'm not saying this is a way that is like, I'm not saying, oh, you've made the wrong choice here. In fact, I think there is um, there's a CK2 mod called uh, Crisis of the Confederation that is going that route with the kind right. of like CK2 in space thing. But I'm curious what made you, what appealed to you about not doing it that way what what did this open you up to what would let you what does this design let you do that maybe that design didn't right well no i should point out that i'm very happy with the choice you know and mm-hmm. I, I think it's turning out really really well but what made us choose this this approach was basically that starting out small uh has many advantages <laughs> mm, <laughs> really sure. it's much easier to learn a game uh when you don't have to bother with the kind of mid and late game mechanics right away uh, yeah right away exactly so you can be kind of eased into the whole experience uh this way and that was that weighed heavily uh when we chose design basically the other thing was also that we wanted to try something new um and basically challenge ourselves a little bit right. <laughs> instead of you know trying to do the same thing again and again no that sounds that sounds fantastic it's it's one of those things where i think it would have been uh, not easy. It still would have been a lot of hard work, but it would have been uh, a kind of like layup in a sense to say, "Oh, we're just going to do CK two in space." Here's the map. It's it's like it's just like Earth, but it's it's there's nebulas here. We've pre done it, and here are again here are the space Germans. Here's the space Holy Roman <laughs> yes. Empire. Um, and, yeah, we pro- we probably know. have gone with something Dune like, right, where there sure. were no aliens. Basically, it was human successor states or something. Right, which is cool. I, I, you know, for the record, I would also one day play that game. But I am very <laughs> excited to play this one for a lot of the reasons I've talked about before. Where because I'm going because we're going to be starting as as you know a single planet, it means that as a player, I will learn what the what how the galactic map works, how the different. Um, you know, the regions of the galaxy are going to work out what a nebula looks like or what a nebula does for me. Whereas if I started and looked at a map that was already made and I had to pick, pick the ruler of an empire and it was like, oh, well, this empire's home world is next to a nebula, which I guess, is that like being next to a mountain or is that like being next to an ocean? Is that, 
what's a river look like in space? You know, and that's I, I understand that that's definitely one of the benefits here. It's like the first time I hit a nebula or when I look at what my how my empire is forming and what planets I've colonized look like. I can say I can see the first time through as a learning experience what the features of of space are are really like. So that that makes sense to me. Yeah, it's also you know, but I also thought that you know I love roguelikes and so on, and mm-hmm. I I would like to have a game where you where you can act at that slightly smaller level and and experience this. Uh, the sense of wonder as you discover the universe, basically. Are you? You mentioned uh, that your ships will get weapon. You, know, you can you can upgrade them and design them, uh, and, yeah. and so on. Is is how how valuable is a ship going to be? Is like a single ship going to be? Is this going to be a game where I have massive fleets of hundreds and hundreds of ships, or is this going to be a thing where like a duel between fifteen ships on each side is a big deal? No, no. Ships are going to be very valuable. Okay. Uh, I don't want this to be a game of rushing out more ships and producing as quickly as possible or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the design is basically you, you invest a lot in certain shipyards, okay. and they're very valuable for you, because that's where you build the, the big ships or the good ships. Mm-hmm. Um, and ships take a long time to build. So, you know, the, the pacing we're, we're aiming for uh, is... <sighs> kind of slower it's more like armies in ck which are kind of hard to replace right um that's the kind of feel uh, that i want on the other hand something we're working on right now is how you know the rubber banding uh, you you should get when you're about to defeat someone it's you know normally in games like this it's like kicking on someone who's lying down already <laughs> you, you, you shut down their fleets right uh so now you know there's no challenge left you want to get increasing resistance, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. the harder you have them beat, basically. Right. And doing that without some, some kind of cheats or anything is, is interesting, but we have some mechanics we're, we're experimenting with at the moment. That sounds great. Uh, you know, it sounds like this is, is headed in a billion interesting directions. I know I say that word a lot. Um, <laughs> because It's because I'm, I'm curious, mostly. You know, I am... I am uh, this could be a game where... So, so a game like Sengoku is a game that I, I probably like more than it is good if that makes sense like i think that when i think about sengoku as a design i go like mm, okay i can see or i could here, here's a way of saying it that's a lot nicer ck2 improves on sengoku <laughs> in lots of very clear ways right as a design um yeah, no. but i still really like sengoku and and i can i can i think stellaris is is pro- i'm hoping stellaris is going to be that latter thing that it's going to be a ck2 uh where i'm like oh this is a platform like i'm gonna play this for the next three years they're going to release interesting you know expansions that bring in all new styles of play um you know in my fanboy head all i can think about is like oh what if they introduce a what if they introduce a, an expansion where you can where there are general characters in the same way there are you know scientist characters or whatever right uh yeah. but but even if it's the former even if this is just one more interesting game in the catalog of paradox uh, i'm really excited for it because i think it will help shift the conversation a little bit around what strategy games are right now so so good luck with everything going forward. Thank you so much, and I really hope you will be pleased. Uh, I, I, I think, think I will be. I suspect yeah. I will be. We'll see. Um, you know, so so sometime in 2016 it will be playable? Yeah, that's the plan. Is there any sort of plan for early access or anything like that, or is it going straight to launch when it's ready? We're not, we're not going to have early access. Okay. Um, we might have a closed beta, okay. or we, we probably will have a closed beta, of course. Uh, Probably not an open beta either. That's right. That's that's I yeah I get that. 
Yeah. Well, so, thanks uh, so much for talking with me, Henrik. Uh, it was it was a joy to talk to you. I really look forward to what you do, uh, and and good luck with everything. Thank you, and good luck with everything as well. <laughs> thanks. Thanks.